This morning we turn to the book of Nehemiah. We turn to chapter 9 where we find our scripture reading. We don't have time to read the entire chapter, so we're just going to read verses 28 through 38. But just for a bit of a setting here, we have in chapter 8, the people of God in Israel returned back to Jerusalem for the first time keeping the feast of the booths or the tabernacles. It was a significant event. Chapter 9 now reveals a time of sorrow and mourning. And we have strikingly in verse 3 that they stood up in their place and read the book of the law of the Lord their God one-fourth part of the day and another fourth part they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. So we have there a six-hour period of worship. And then in verses 4 and 5, we have the Levites rising up with an admonition, Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. And blessed be thy glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. And then what follows is a prayer of Nehemiah now that gives an account of God's faithfulness throughout history, God's continued care for his church. And we take it up now in verse 28. But after they had rest, they did evil again before thee. And therefore leftest thou them in the hand of their enemies, so that they had the dominion over them. Yet when they returned and cried unto thee, thou heardest them from heaven. And many times didst thou deliver them according to thy mercies, and testified against them, that thou mightest bring them again unto thy law. Yet they dealt proudly, and hearkened not unto thy commandments, but sinned against thy judgments. Wish which, if a man do, he shall live in them. And withdrew the shoulder, and hardened their neck, and would not hear. Yet many years didst thou forbear them, and testified against them by thy spirit in thy prophets. Yet would they not give ear. Therefore gavest thou them into the hand of the people of the lands. Nevertheless, for thy great mercy's sake, thou didst not utterly consume them, nor forsake them, for thou art a gracious and merciful God. Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and the terrible God, who keepest covenant and mercy, let not all the trouble seem little before thee, that hath come upon us, on our kings, on our princes, on our priests, and on our prophets, and on our fathers, and on all thy people, since the time of the kings of Assyria unto this day. Howbeit thou art just in all that is brought upon us, for thou hast done right, but we have done wickedly. Neither have our kings, our princes, our priests, nor our fathers kept thy law, nor hearkened unto thy commandments and thy testimonies, wherewith thou didst testify against them. For they have not served thee in their kingdom, and in thy great goodness that thou gavest them, and in the large and fat land which thou gavest before them. Neither turned they from their wicked works. Behold, we are servants this day, and for the land that thou gavest unto our fathers to eat the fruit thereof and the good thereof, behold, we are servants in it. And it yieldeth much increase unto the kings whom thou hast set over us because of our sins. Also they have dominion over our bodies and over our cattle 
at their pleasure, and we are in great distress. And because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it, and our princes, Levites, and priests seal unto it. And then chapter 10 gives an account of that covenant that they make before God. We hear God's word and we pray its blessing upon our hearts. We take as our text this morning, verse 31. Nevertheless, for thy great mercy's sake, thou didst not utterly consume them, nor forsake them. For thou art a gracious and merciful God. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, as we noted, the occasion for this chapter, the Levites approach the people and stand on the stairs, according to verses 4 and 5, and they cry with a loud voice, Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. The Levites do that upon the occasion of the deep humility of the people. The people are in deep sorrow. They're confessing their sins. They're spending six hours in that Worship and confession of sin. Now the question we face this morning in part is this. Why would the Levites admonish the people for their sorrow and their lamentation for sin? Isn't it good for them to be consumed with sorrow? For them to be spending time with ackcloth and ashes? There is and there was a valid place for sorrow for sin and for mourning. But another subject had to have the primary focus. And that subject is simply this, God's faithfulness. And so in essence, the Levites are saying, stand up. Look at God. Look at what God has done for you. Look at the greatness of his glory and his majesty as it's traced throughout all history. And they proceed then to trace through the history of the Israelites, God's goodness and God's faithfulness. In a sense, we have here in Nehemiah 9 something similar to Psalm 106, a historical account, briefly, of Israel, their unfaithfulness, God's wondrous works, in order to show God's faithfulness toward his people. As important as the act of confession of sin is, as important as it is for us to be remorseful, we may not stay in the realm of sorrow. We must stand up. We must know the greatness of God's grace and God's mercy and the forgiveness of sins as we look at his marvelous faithfulness. Beloved, that's our desire this morning. Having examined ourselves this past week, knowing the grievous nature and character of our sinful nature, our actual, our original sin, we come into the presence of Jehovah God. And we do so Hearing this admonition of the Levites, stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. And blessed be thy glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. This history is given so that we might know and be reminded of God's marvelous mercy and God's blessing. Our sins are not the only focus this morning. The focus is the greatness of God's faithfulness. And our sins serve to complement that faithfulness and that goodness. And we focus then on God's amazing mercy and grace. Taking from verse 31 
our gracious and merciful God. Noting, first of all, God's faithfulness. Secondly, the reason for that faithfulness. And finally, the thanksgiving. Thou didst not utterly consume them, nor forsake them. The faithfulness of God is seen in this. God says to you and to me this morning, I am not going to deal with you according to your sin. I am not going to deal with you as you deserve. Israel brought shame to the name of God. And they didn't just do it once or twice. They did it repeatedly. Constant occasion for the nations around to mock and to question and to challenge. What does it mean that they were the people of God? How were they conducting themselves in a manner that reflected that? They were proud. They insisted on doing things according to their own will rather than submitting to God's will. And Israel sought to dominate everything. They wanted everything their way. They desired, they took, they did according to their pursuit. Every time they did that, pursuing their own will, they ran into the wall of God's righteousness. And God's righteousness, God's justice stopped them. And God's judgment then came upon them in various ways. Chastising, punishing, revealing himself as a holy, a righteous God. God repeatedly reminding Israel, I am the one who must speak. I am the one whose will must be done. And I must be obeyed. Israel must not be centered around herself. She must not be centered around her own pursuits. God must be at the center of her existence. And beloved, so it is with you and me. So it is with our churches. We try to dominate our own actions, our own will. We try to center things around our pursuits, our will. We become proud in our pursuits. And God humbles us. And God teaches us. His mercy, His grace alone is that which is our strength. There's so many ways in which that pride becomes evident. Thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought. Thinking of our churches more highly than we should. Thinking of ourselves in pride and looking down on those around us. Conducting ourselves in a manner that esteems self, pursues our own will, our own way, our own ambitions, and despises the things of God and the things of God's kingdom. Giving the wicked opportunity to say, and those people are Christians? They claim to be Christians? How is it that they conduct themselves as they do? They bite and devour each other. Their tongues are evil. They're not walking in love. They're not demonstrating faithfulness to God. Is this what it means to be a child of God? Living for oneself? Showing no compassion to those around them? Backbiting? Slander? Beloved, we need to think about our sin. And we think about what our sin does. We think about the impact that that sin has, not only our own lives, but those around us. We despise God. We despise the goodness and the mercy of God. And we give occasion then also for the enemies to blaspheme. And we realize the impact of sin in our lives when adults in the church pursue the ways of the world. Then how much more The children of the church are open to pursuing those sins, those temptations, 
when we're walking with the world in our homes, then so quickly our children are walking with the world and their recreation and their influences. We despise God's word and God's commands and we walk openly, rebellious against it. We know what God says, but I'm not going to submit to that. We show ourselves to be hypocrites. In pride, we rise up against God. God requires of us that we fall on our knees and that we acknowledge our sin. Do you know what your sin is? Your sin is an offense against the almighty God of heaven and earth. Do you know the seriousness of that sin? Just one sin demands everlasting destruction. Hell to all eternity. God is a righteous God who demands justice. Beloved, when we hear from God the seriousness of our sins, and when we examine ourselves in light of God's commandments and God's law, and we see the pride, and we see the selfishness, and we see the pursuit of our own will, our own ways, we're crushed by the knowledge of what that sin is and what that sin does. And we see how quickly and how easily the devil has his way with us, leading us in ways that we would otherwise never have gone, but yet breaking down inhibitions and giving us then more and more to pursue our own way, our own will. We see how the devil works so subtly, convincing us that God really doesn't mean what he says in his word. After all, God wants us to be happy. God wants us to be successful, and therefore, we can pursue our own way. And it doesn't matter what happens to others whom we trample underfoot on the way. Beloved, crushed by our sin and realizing the seriousness of it, we need to hear then this word, this glorious word from God. I have put away your sin. I'm not going to punish you for that sin. I have forgiven you, and I will not utterly forsake you. What a word, a word of grace. And that's what Israel heard repeatedly throughout her history. That's what the church of Jesus Christ has experienced throughout all of time. God's mercy and God's grace expressed again and again in the midst of her unworthiness and the midst of her sinfulness. Now this word of grace is a word of forgiveness. And this word of forgiveness does not mean that God ignores our sin. It doesn't mean that God does nothing regarding our sin. God judges. He sends consequences and chastisements because of our sins. As a man sows, so also he will reap. We understand that. There's going to be consequences of our sins. And God ordains them for our good. Constant reminders of how weak we are. Constant reminders of how dependent we are upon God and upon His grace. And those consequences, those scars remain with us till we die. Israel already had been taken into captivity. Now a remnant had returned. And it was just a shell of Israel. The chastisement of God had been severe. A man would at times rather die than have to experience that harsh chastisement. But God works the faith and the grace by which we confess those chastisements are for my good. 
David would rather have died than to have experienced the sword in his house. Constantly, someone from his family was dying. And David knew these were chastisements because of his sin that he had committed. But they're out of love. They're for good. And even though I'm forgiven by God, I still feel what, in my mind, our judgments in my mind seem to be punishments, but I believe they're expressions yet of God's love reminding me until I die of my complete dependence upon Him. Forgiven by God, and yet experiencing these judgments and these chastisements for my sin until I die. And this is what causes the child of God to pray fervently, deliver me from evil. Give me the victory over the power of sin in my life. Give me more and more to understand and to know the marvel and the wonder of thy goodness and of thy grace. God wants us to learn about him so that we seek more and more to be conformed to his image. And so he wants us to know the horror of sin. He wants us to be touched by that sin very concretely so that we feel it, the pain of it, the horror of it. And he wants us to hate that sin and to flee from it. God's judgment, God's chastisements are all expressions of mercy. And it's important that as we experience those chastisements, those judgments, that we know this is not punishment. All the punishment for sin has been taken by my Savior, Jesus Christ. He bore it all. This is not retribution. It's not vengeance. God is not executing vengeance upon His church. Every sin that I've committed has been punished at the cross. All God's dealings in judgment with His people are chastisements. Now when the Word of God comes... And when that word exposes sin, what do you do? The temptation is to do as the Israelites did, run. Run away from the word of God. Slay the prophets. Kill those who are bearing the news of my sin. Don't try to run away from the word. Don't try to run away from the preaching. Don't run away from the admonitions of the elders, the admonitions of the deacons. Don't try to run away from your parents. God's word is, humble yourselves, as did Israel. When you open your Bible this afternoon for family devotions, and you read something, or perhaps for personal devotions, and it pricks you, don't slam the Bible shut. Sit down. Listen to God and to his word. When your parents rebuke you, when they correct you because of your sin, don't withdraw to your room and try to institute a pity party and try to put the blame back on them because of the things that they've accused you of don't try to find fault with them you'll find fault they're sinners but we need to look at ourselves we need to humble ourselves before the admonition of God and his word as it comes through various means when a loving concerned friend comes to you to point out a weakness to point out a sin Don't respond in pride. Don't respond in a manner that you try to find occasion against that person. Humble yourself. And when you hear about your sin, and when that sin is exposed, 
we flee to the forgiveness, the mercy of Jehovah God. That's what Israel here is admonished to do. You are sinners. You are sinful. Look at the history of your life. Look at how you conducted yourself. But what stands out in all of it is not your sin. It's the faithfulness, the mercy, the grace of your great God. Look what he did for you again and again and again. You deserve to be cast off. You should have been destroyed everlastingly. But he did not cast you off. In love, he embraced you. And he forgave you. The forgiveness, the mercy of God is on the foreground. And so it's important for us to understand and to continually remind ourselves as severe as God's chastisements are, they are not what I deserve. In that regard, there's two temptations that can happen at times. On the one hand, we feel the hand of God on us very heavy. And we're inclined to say, I deserve that. On the other hand, we experience hardship. Perhaps losing a child, losing a spouse, becoming sick, disabled in an accident. And we're humbled and we're tempted to say, I'm such a sinner. I deserve that. Or in pride sometimes, we're experiencing troubles in our life, hardships. Others are to be blamed in our estimation. We say, I don't deserve that. I don't deserve to have experienced all these afflictions and troubles. Beloved, all those perspectives are wrong. As Job said to his wife, stop talking so foolishly. You did not get what you deserved. You deserve to be cast off forever. You deserve hell. You deserve everlasting damnation. You deserve to be banished forever from the hand of God. That's what you deserve. But God didn't do that. God didn't utterly destroy you. And when you say, I'm such a sinner, all these troubles are coming upon me because I deserve it, you're denying the cross. You're denying the wonder of what Jesus did for you. He who stood in your place. God did not destroy you. He did not destroy me. And there's only one reason. For His mercy's sake. And that's the heart of our text. For thy great mercy's sake, thou didst not utterly consume them, nor forsake them. God is a merciful God. He's a God who is kind. A God who is compassionate. Literally, we have here, God is a God of pardons. That's what characterizes God. God is a God who is characterized by pardons. He forgives and forgives and forgives again and again. He doesn't deal with us as we deserve because He dealt with Christ for your and my sake. Jesus experienced the horror, the pain, the suffering as a substitute standing in your and my place. And his forgiveness is not conditional upon anything that you do or anything that I do. His forgiveness is not something that we can earn. It's not something that we deserve. God freely pardons those whom he loves. And that's mercy. That's pity. That's compassion toward one who is in distress. God is a God of pardon. What a beautiful truth. 
as we flee to God as our refuge, as we come to Him in prayer, God is a God of pardons. He's merciful and gracious. And so as I look at my life and as I examine myself, this is the question I ask. Am I hiding sin? Am I refusing to confess sin? Don't do that. Don't wait for that sin to get exposed at some future point. It will be. God is faithful. He's good at exposing sin. But if you've sinned against your spouse, confess it. If you've sinned against the church, confess it. If you've sinned against your children, against your parents, confess that sin. Acknowledge that sin before God. Now we say, but I'm afraid of the exposure. I'm afraid of the shame that that confession might bring upon me. We are all afraid of the shame of sin. Do we fear the chastisements of God that may can't come upon us? Yes, of course. We don't like the chastisements. They're hurtful. They're painful for us to experience. But understand this. You have a God who deals kindly. A God who deals mercifully with you. You have a God, and I have a God, beloved, who is a God of pardons. You have a God who will not treat you as you deserve to be treated. God works grace in the hearts of His children so that they embrace and they forgive repentant sinners. There are people who might treat you badly if you confess your sins and you acknowledge your sin. But Jehovah God will not. And we trust also this wonder. Jehovah God works grace in the hearts of His children so that they do not rise up in pride. They do not esteem themselves above other sinners, but they receive sinners in love. Repent, and we experience the marvelous mercy and the grace of our Heavenly Father. What a wonder, beloved. This is the reason for God's great mercy's sake that we are not consumed. This is the reason why Israel was not cast off. And we celebrate that marvelous mercy this morning. As we come to the table of the Lord, we do so in the awareness of the greatness of our sin, but also the marvelous mercy of our God. We come into the presence of a God who is a God of pardons, a God who will not hold my sin against me, and who works in me the grace by which I don't hold the sins of others against them. So great is the grace and the mercy of this great God. A mercy that was displayed at the cross when Jesus gave his body and his blood for you and for me. And so the Levites, through Nehemiah the prophet here, are reminding the people of Israel, God is a God who is gracious He's a God who is merciful. God could have caused Israel to become extinct. He could have cut them off entirely. And often we read that history and we wonder, why didn't God do that? Why didn't God just be finished with them? Why did God exercise so much long-suffering with them? And then, beloved, we look at our lives and we ask the same question. Why hasn't God cast me off? 
I'm no better than Israel. But God hasn't. God will not. He preserved to himself a remnant according to eternal election. He preserved to himself a people whom he had chosen from before the beginnings of time, upon whom he would set his love. A people who rebellious, who were sinners, but a people whom he would restore and redeem through Jesus Christ, whom he would raise to heights of victory that they could never have imagined, in order that the greatness of his mercy might be demonstrated in the salvation of that undeserving people. God demonstrates his power, his greatness. You deny him. I deny him. We slap him in the face. We walk contrary to his will. We pursue our own way. We think we know better the course of our lives than he has prescribed according to his divine commands in his word. Israel, we're inclined to rise up and to kill the prophets who would rebuke us. But God, in his mercy, doesn't cast us off. In love, He's merciful. He's gracious. And he shows favor even when I deserve only wrath. There's only one explanation, beloved, that's ever going to suffice. The wondrous mercy and the grace of Jehovah God. And to all eternity, that will be our confession. What great things God did for me. And to all eternity, that's the occasion of our praise. I'm nothing but a sinner worthy of everlasting destruction. But he lifted me. He brought me out of the mire. He held me up upon the rock. He gave me to know the wonder of forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And this great God does not want me merely wallowing in my sin throughout the course of my life. He wants me celebrating the greatness of his mercy and his grace toward me. That was the concern, beloved, of the prophet here by God's inspiration. There are those who are consumed with their sin and they never get beyond it. Burdened with sin, the Israelites were, and that was good. But their focus had to expand. Oh, wretched man that I am had to lead to, but thanks be to God for the gift of a Savior in Jesus Christ. God is not praised by those who persist in sorrow. Those who seek to impress upon others that their sorrow is greater than others, that they are more worthy of compassion because of the depths of their sorrows. We don't earn salvation by the depths of our grief. We hear the admonition, Stand up! Bless the Lord your God forever and ever. And blessed be His glorious name which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Look to God's mercy. Look to the wonder of God's grace toward you and celebrate what great wonders he's performed on your behalf. God works thankfulness in the hearts of his children. God turns us away from self and he directs us to himself and to the greatness of his glory and his majesty. How will I, how will you respond? Thanksgiving. That's what Israel did here in this history. Israel reaffirmed her commitment to walk in covenant faithfulness to her God. She had sinned. She had failed again and again. But now what would she do? She would write a sure covenant and would seal it. And that's what we read occurring 
In verse 38, because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it. And our princes, Levites, and priests seal unto it. And then chapter 10 records all the people that sealed and then what it is that they pledged that they would do. And at heart, they pledged that they would maintain God's commandments, that they would keep the rules that he had made with regard to separation from the wicked, intermarriage, the Sabbath day, and all of the other aspects of God's commandments. Beloved, we do that as well this morning. As we come to the table of the Lord, we renew our faith. And we renew our vow to walk in faithfulness to our God. This great God who has performed such wonders on our behalf, we owe Him our all. We're a thankful people. And as a thankful people, we celebrate then the unfailing faithfulness and the mercy of our God. Confessing our sins through tears, we cling to His mercy, His faithfulness, His grace. And we pledge then to live our lives unto Him and to show forth His praise. We will not be crushed because of our sins. We will not be destroyed because of our sin. Jesus Christ was crushed in our place. He covered us. He took the full punishment that we deserved and he rose again from the dead in order to live. Out of gratitude to God, we come to the table with a confession, we are servants. That was the response in verse 36. Behold, we are servants this day. And for the land that thou gavest unto our fathers to eat the fruit thereof and the good thereof, behold, we are servants in it. The servant acknowledges his Lord. And the servant acknowledges his place. It's a privilege that I am to serve God. And I view it with that spirit. And I walk before him with the joy and the thankfulness that he's worked in my heart. Confessing the wonder of what he's done and the fact that I am, by his grace, able to walk in in good works unto the glory and honor of his name. That he strengthens me by his spirit to put away the old, to put on the new, and to live a new and holy life before him, desiring to show that joy in the way of thankful obedience, devoting myself to him in all of my life, turning away from my own will in order to know his will more and more fully, that I might know true joy and true happiness as I walk before Him. Beloved, we come this morning to the table of the Lord to confess our great need for Christ. We long to walk in thankfulness. We long to live faithfully before Him as servants. We long to be faithful to that sure covenant to which we are committed. We have a small beginning only of that new obedience. We seek the fullness of that joy and the fullness of that obedience in Jesus Christ. And we come to Him assured that He will strengthen our faith, that He will work in us not only the sorrow that is necessary by pricking us because of our sin, but the joy of our salvation. And that He will renew within us that zeal to do all to the glory and honor of His name. When the Holy Spirit, beloved, takes hold of a person, He doesn't just polish the outward appearance. 
The Spirit takes hold of the heart. And the Spirit makes that one a new creature in Jesus Christ. The Spirit works wonders that cause men and women to stand in awe. As He dwells in us, He sanctifies us. He works in us the grace to forgive, even as we have been forgiven. And He fills us with the fullness of that grace. So that we live not for self, we live unto Him. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, we give all praise, all glory to Thee for the glorious work of Thy grace. Humble our sinful pride. Draw us unto Thee with cords of love and work in us the awareness that we are nothing. Thou art our all in all and we are what we are only because of Thy mercy and Thy grace that fails never. That our only hope is that thou art a God of pardons. Amen.